Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 16th day of April, 2017. Imagine living in the shadow of four cooling towers, part of a pair of nuclear reactors. One day you notice something might be wrong, and next you hear about a cloud of radiation that might have been released into the air. You need to leave, maybe never to return. Today I tell the story of Three Mile Island on the 124th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. In the words of John Lennon, I am he, as you are he, as you are me, and we are all together. Thanks for joining me today. I often wonder if Marge worries about Homer working in a nuclear power plant all day. I also wonder if the residents of Springfield worry about having a person like Homer work in a nuclear power plant. Anyway, now and again, I like to remind my listeners that my stories are never the whole story. I mean, today's story takes place over five days, and, and in the interest of keeping the show to a reasonable time frame, there is no way to tell everything. In fact, I watched two documentaries while researching Three Mile Island. Both were over 45 minutes long, and each one had information that the other one didn't. I also tried my best to understand the technical details of what caused the problem, which is hard because everything I watched or read had a slightly different variation on what went wrong, but I think I did a pretty good job of getting to the core of the situation. But I do realize that me talking about the interworkings of a nuclear power plant is sort of like a caveman talking about the workings of an automobile. You know what I'm saying? Now, to change the subject, there's 14 new episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix, and I couldn't be more excited. I haven't had a chance to watch them yet, but I will this week. The new version stars Jonah Ray of Nerdist fame, as the man stuck watching bad movies with Crow T. Robot and Tom Servo, and Felicia Day and Patton Oswald as the new Mads. Oh, and speaking of MST3K, there's a podcast called Movie Signs with the Mad, starring Frank Conniff and Trace Bellew. And along with Carolina Hildago, they talk about, well, movies. Now, this is not a PsyCon podcast, so maybe I shouldn't mention it, but I actually really enjoy this podcast. Now, on their January 11th show, they talk about the film Ed Wood. But they spend more time talking about their love for the man, Edward D. Wood Jr., than about the the Tim Burton film. And of course, you might remember a while back I did three Coffee with Jeff episodes on Ed Wood. And I obviously have a love for the man and his work, but I thought Frank Trace and Carolina summed up my feelings about Ed Wood better than I did on my show. So if you have a chance, give it a listen. Anyway, the temperature in Chicagoland is getting close to 80 degrees Fahrenheit today, and what that means to me is I have no more excuses for not getting some yard work done, so let's get this show underway. 
We're going to talk about the terror of an accident in the heart of a nuclear power plant in a place called Three Mile Island. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Now that the world has learned how to tap atomic energy with the atomic bomb, what a blessing it would be if science could harness this vast atomic energy to generate electricity, to propel ships, to do the work of the world. Well, it's on the way. Here at Westinghouse, scientists are developing the world's first atomic power plant for ship propulsion. Westinghouse men are converting basic data from the University of Chicago into the atomic power plant. When the events in today's story happened, I was 17 years old and living in the Midwest of the United States, almost 700 miles from where this all happened. I was about to graduate high school, and as far as I knew, there was just some problem at a nuclear power plant somewhere on the East Coast. No one was hurt. And, well, all those responsible would be dealt with, and eventually it would all be fixed and the world would go on. Anyway, I was occupied by rock and roll, girls, and beer, so, you know. But as I got older, I began to wonder, what really happened on that day in 1979? After all, it was, and still is, the largest accident in the history of American nuclear power. How serious was it? How many people were in danger? And is it something we should be concerned about today? Now, the 1970s was an unusual time for the USA. The days of inexpensive gasoline were gone. Oil prices went from about $3 a barrel in 1972 to $30 a barrel in 1979. And there just wasn't enough to go around. Gas stations were constantly running out and many limited just how many gallons one could buy. Long lines of vehicles waiting at the gas pumps were common. And it wasn't just gasoline, but the prices of all types of fuel were on the rise. Nuclear power seemed like a good, clean, affordable alternative. Nuclear power plants were being built all over the country, and the nuclear boom happened so quickly that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission didn't have the resources to keep up. In a strange coincidence, a film called The China Syndrome was released just weeks before our story took place. The film is the story of an accident at a nuclear power plant. The term China Syndrome describes an imaginary result of a nuclear meltdown where reactor components melt through their containment structures, melt through the underlying earth, and make their way all the way to China. Now, Three Mile Island is located in the Londonderry Township of Pennsylvania in the southern area of the state. It's an island in the middle of the Susquehanna River. The island was given its name of Three Miles because it's located about three miles downriver from Middletown, Pennsylvania. When the plant was in the planning stages, the Metropolitan Edison Company, known as MetEd, assured the public that it was completely safe, that they had numerous safety precautions and backup systems to keep any kind of accident from occurring. Nuclear power was the cheap, safe, clean energy of the future. 
but you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. The plant consisted of two reactors. Unit 1, known as TMI-1, began construction at the north end of the island in 1968 and began generating electricity in 1974. TMI-2 began construction in 1969, and unlike Unit 1, which was built and put into operation trouble-free, Unit 2 seemed to always have problems. Construction had many delays, and once put into operation in April of 1978, there were repeated unscheduled shutdowns. Creating electricity from nuclear reactions works a little like this. Very simply, the splitting of atoms creates heat, that turns water into steam, and then that steam turns turbines that are connected to generators, and it is those generators that produce electricity. It's sort of amazing that, with all our advanced technology, the fact is, water turning a generator is still what's creating electricity, the same way it's been done for over a hundred years. Now this hot steam has to be cooled, and that's what the cooling towers are for. Inside those, pipes with the hot steam run through water and cool it down before the process starts all over again. The system sounds simple, but in reality it's a very complex operation done on a massive scale. And of course, this is all monitored by workers who keep a watch of over a thousand lights, gauges, and switches and they keep the power plant operating safe. Or so they thought. Eleven hours before all hell broke loose, workers were attempting to clear a blockage in a filter that was used to clear minerals and impurities from the water. They used air to force high-pressure water at the blockage. It seemed to work, but there was a problem. Some of the water made its way past a stuck-open check valve and then made its way into the instrument airline. It was around 4 a.m. when this water caused the feed pumps, condensing booster pumps, and condensation pumps to shut off. So suddenly, in the early morning hours of March 28, 1979, lights and alarms began to go off like the 4th of July in the reactor control room. With the pump shut off, the dangerously hot water could not be cooled. The three workers who were on duty that night and were monitoring the plant now were facing not only a situation that they had never encountered before, but also something they had never been trained to deal with. And as the heat began to build in the main cooling tank, an automated system, as a safety procedure, shut down the nuclear reactor and dumped the radioactive rods into the cooling water. Now the tremendous heat began to build rapidly. Now, in many disasters, it's usually not the fault of one problem or, or one case of operator error or the faulty part that causes the accident, but multiple things go wrong at the same time. In this case, the reactor's relief valve automatically opened like it was meant to do in this situation to relieve some of the pressure in the tank, but it didn't close back up after a few seconds like it should have. Even worse, a light in the control room that showed that the valve was open went out, leaving the operators thinking that it had closed. The all-important coolant that kept the reactor safe from a meltdown was now pouring out and making for a very dangerous situation. And with all of the thousands of lights and dials in the control room, there wasn't one to show how much coolant was in the system. 
A thousand pounds of radioactive steam and water were being shot into the air every minute and no one knew it. But the plant did have an emergency water cooling system and if left alone, it may have solved the problem right there. But all the workers had to go by was a gauge that told them of the water and steam pressure inside the system and it showed an increasing pressure. They assumed it was because too much water was in the tanks. But that wasn't the case. The fact was, the rising heat was creating steam, which was creating the pressure. Now, if too much water gets into the tank, they reach a condition they call going solid. This is a condition where so much water fills the tank that it explodes like a balloon. This is something workers are taught never to let happen. And as far as they knew, this was exactly what was happening, when in reality, just the opposite was happening. By 5 a.m., one hour after it all began, the control room was filled with men trying to figure out what to do, and they did the worst thing possible. They shut down the emergency water pumps, thinking that this would prevent the tank from going solid. And for a short time, they thought they had solved their problem. But without the pumps adding water into the system, things were heating up hotter and hotter to over 2,000 degrees and rising. Now, if it was to reach 5,000 degrees, things would melt into a radioactive lava that would quickly eat through the reactor. And if this happens, this radioactive lava would pour into the earth and soon geysers of radioactive steam would begin shooting up all over the area in parking lots, backyards, street schools, everywhere. And by the time the stuck valve was discovered, it was two hours later and too late to do anything about it. And then another alarm sounded. Radiation was now entering the control room. And on top of all this, Babcock and Wilcox, the designers of the plant, were trying to call to help but the control room had only two phone lines, and those phones were constantly in use. In fact, they tried to get a hold of the operators for five hours, and all they got was a busy signal. Any communications for the designers had to be relayed through another office, then to Unit 1. From Unit 1, somebody had to run over to Unit 2 to get the information they needed, run back and tell the other office who had to call the designers. It was a four-step process, which means there's four chances for a communication breakdown, and they usually ended up with bad or incomplete information. Now, up to this point, the people in the surrounding area were beginning their day, you know, waking, eating breakfast, showering, going to work or school, all the normal everyday rituals that they had been doing all their lives. But that all changed at around 8.30 a.m. That's when the story finally broke. Mike Pinnack, the news director of local radio station WKBO, said he first realized that something was going on at around 8 a.m., and that's when his traffic reporter, Captain Dave Edwards, called him to say he noticed that apparently they were mobilizing some fire equipment and other emergency people at Three Mile Island. And he also noticed that no steam was coming out of the cooling towers. Mike called the plant to find out what was wrong and was immediately connected to the control room where a worker told him, I can't talk now, we've got a problem. Mike knew that something serious was happening. 
Finally, a general state of emergency was declared. And at 9.15, the White House in Washington, D.C. was notified. The lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, William Scranton, made an announcement. He said to the press, The Metropolitan Edison Company has informed us there had been an incident at Three Mile Island's Unit Number 2. Everything is under control. There is and was no danger to the public health and safety. He assured the public that there had been no off-site release of radiation. Scranton would later say that moments after he made this early morning press conference, he learned that, in fact, there had been an off-site release of radiation. He said that he had not gotten over the indignation that he felt, and it was at that moment he realized that he could not rely on Met-Ed for the kind of information they needed to have to make decisions. The mayor also stated that he was and still is upset that he was misinformed or lied to. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, known as the NRC, set up an emergency center in Maryland and sent inspectors to the plant. When inspectors arrived, they noticed workers in the turbine building, an area that is not normally contaminated, wearing anti-contamination radiation suits along with respirator masks. They knew that something was very wrong. They also noticed that since everybody in the building was wearing these outfits, communications between the workers were very difficult as they tried to talk through these respirators. By 11 a.m., radiation was being detected outside the plant and all non-essential personnel were ordered off the plant's premises. When Met-Ed talked to the press, they made no mention of this and gave the impression that everything was under control and the worst was over. This began a whole series of misinformation, public concern, and panic as the people in Pennsylvania began to become angry as they realized just how serious the situation was and that they weren't being told the truth. And the whole time, the President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, who was a trained nuclear engineer, followed the story. He was well aware of just how serious this all was. It wasn't until that evening, 16 hours after it all began, that the designers of the plant, Babcock and Wilcox, the men who had been trying to get through all day long, finally got a call through and told them, forget about what you think you know, get the water flowing into the system before it completely melts. And once the pumps were turned on and water was added to the system, things began to stabilize and people began to calm down. Residents of the area were assured the worst was over. But then again, they were not being told the truth. The following day, Thursday, the governor of Pennsylvania, Dick Thornburg, still felt uneasy and sent Lieutenant Governor William Scranton to the scene. He inspected the plant wearing a radiation suit and a respirator. And when he returned, Scranton said he thought the problem was fixable. Yet by Friday, word was getting around that a large amount of dangerous radioactive gas had escaped the plant and into the surrounding atmosphere. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission from Washington, D.C. recommended to the governor that he evacuate the area. The governor was confused. He had not heard of the possible radiation leak and didn't understand why an evacuation was recommended. And he had already looked into the idea of an evacuation and the plans didn't look good. He feared the damage that the panic of a mass exodus might cause. 
He called the current evacuation plan chilling. It was the governor's call as to what to do, but the problem was he didn't feel that MetEd or the NRC was giving him the proper information or any information. In fact, the chairman of the NRC, Joseph Hendry, was also clueless as to what was going on. Hendry told an aide, Thornburg's information is ambiguous. Mine is non-existent. We're like a couple of blind men trying to make a decision. And on top of that, the emergency civil defense siren in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, began unexpectedly to sound, throwing people into a panic. Why the siren went off, no one knows, but the local fire department vehicles traveled the streets telling people that a state of emergency had been declared and all residents should stay indoors with their windows closed. The people of Harrisburg must have been frightened out of their wits. Some people began to leave. The panic had begun. Finally, the governor got some good news. It appeared that the amount of radiation that was released was far less than first reported. It seemed, as crazy as it sounds, that a decimal point in the garbled communications had been misplaced. The situation was far less serious than they first thought, but that didn't matter to the people of the area. The idea of radiation in the air, no matter how much, is too much. The story was now world news, and and Met Ed attempted to calm nerves with another press conference. But by now, people were no longer in the mood for their double talk, and things turned hostile. The governor, on the recommendation from the NRC, advised that women who are pregnant and preschool-age children leave the area. This was enough for most people, and the mass exodus began. Many of those who were leaving believed they would never see their homes again. They thought that the area around Three Mile Island would become a nuclear wasteland and would be uninhabitable for hundreds of years. Some cried as they left. By this time, President Jimmy Carter had had enough, and upon the request of the governor, sent his own man to investigate, someone who the governor thought could be trusted. If there's a hero to this story, it's Harold Denton, director of the Office of Nuclear Reactor Regulations, who arrived hours later. He was a man who knew what he was doing, and Governor Thornburg was finally relieved to have somebody who would tell him the truth. Denton quickly realized there was no immediate danger and held a press conference to let the public know. But that's when the hydrogen gas bubble was discovered. This bubble was in the core and could keep the core from cooling and cause a meltdown. And this was the first time to the public that the term meltdown was used in the news. Again, evacuation was talked about, and on top of that, it was thought that if this hydrogen bubble mixed with oxygen, it could explode. Plans for a complete evacuation was being worked out by people who hadn't had any sleep for days. Many thought it was time to go, and others involved with dealing with this mess thought that they were going to die. Yet, while those involved in the situation were in a panic state, fearing the worst, it was Harold Denton who stayed calm. Governor Thornburg decided to based his decision on the word of Denton, and Denton's team calculated that there was no danger of an explosion. At a press conference, Denton explained that there was no more danger. 
And then, to the public's relief, the governor announced that President Jimmy Carter was coming to inspect the plant the following day. This put a lot of fears to rest. Apparently, not everybody was convinced that the hydrogen bubble would not explode, and the story goes that Denton and another man had a heated exchange at the airport while they waited for Jimmy Carter to arrive. When Jimmy Carter did show up at the plant, the people who were left in the town cheered as his motorcade headed to the plant, and it turned out that Denton was right. The hydrogen bubble was never in danger of exploding. Those that thought so had used the wrong formula to make their calculations. By the time the president left Three Mile Island, he knew the danger was over, and soon people were coming home. But no matter how much they were told that the amount of radiation that was released was harmless, to many, with all the lies and misinformation they were told, there would always be that shadow of a doubt. But to this day, no health effects have been ever detected over what happened at Three Mile Island. Through all the panic and fear, there was one industry that profited from this experience. It was those enterprising clothing manufacturers who marketed their I Survived Three Mile Island t-shirts. And of course, the story is not over. There would be investigations and hearings, finger pointing and all that sort of thing, but that's a different story. It would be three years before they could put a robotic camera into the core to see the damage. And the workers were shocked to realize just how much of the core was melted. A third to 50% of it suffered a meltdown. But from all this, nuclear regulations and training were completely changed. Since it happened in 1979, 51 U.S. nuclear reactors that were scheduled to be built were canceled. And until 2012, there were no new nuclear power plants built in the United States. The damage caused by this event would take 14 years to clean up. It happened at the number two generator about four o'clock this morning. Something caused the secondary cooling system to fail. It shut off the reactor, but heat and pressure built up and some radioactive steam escaped into the building housing the reactor and eventually out into the plant and the air. William Wittick lives across the river. I heard a uh, very loud noise uh, that sounded like uh, a uh, huge release of uh, steam. And uh, I looked out the window. It was, it was dark, but you could see from the lights over there that there was a geyser of steam that was uh, raising up in the air. A crew from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission rushed from Washington and sped around all day testing for radiation. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. Near where I live is Illinois State Beach, which is on Lake Michigan. The northern part of the beach is practically in the shadow of the old Zion Nuclear Power Station. It was built during the nuclear power boom of the 1970s, about the same time as Three Mile Island, and it was shut down in 1998. My wife and I were at the beach last summer, and we walked down and looked at the plant. It's hard not to think about it and wonder just how safe were we, really. Well, the story was a bit long today, so let's get into a quick version of the ending credits.
If you'd like to be a supporter of the PsyCon Network, visit our Patreon page. You can find information at PsyCon. That's www.csicon.fm. And of course, a sincere thanks to everybody who supports the show. While at PsyCon, check out a few of our other amazing shows. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars. That really helps. And remember, all the links to the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost it. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another amazing story. <laughs> 